Good evening. Man, I'm glad to see all of you. I'm glad that you've come out to participate in what it is that we're going to be doing here. I hope that it's been somewhat fruitful for you. It's been rich for me to go back and revisit my friend James. He is a powerful, powerful writer. He is inspired, but maybe the best thing about James is that he meddles. He gets right here in your life and he will not let you go because he knows that if he's going to effect real change that we will recognize as growth, he's got to meddle. He's got to get into our lives. And he hasn't hesitated to do that. And so we haven't hesitated to do that as well. So there have been some things that we've talked about. They're kind of personal and uh, I thought so while we're still here. Is this the right thing? Have I got the right button? Push Okay. That uh, we would leave with some of the most personal and intimate things that James talks about. We're talking about those. I'm so glad to see my friend Josh McKibben. It's hard not to see Josh McKibben, but I'm so glad to see him. And I know the brethren here are well acquainted with the tremendous talent and the way he is a steward of those things. I'm so thankful that he preaches. I'm so thankful for his work and his labor. I'm thankful for his love. And I'm so thankful for the zeal with which he executes all of those things. He's a powerful force for good. He's a servant of God. And I'm so glad that he's here. And I really have enjoyed getting to know Landon. I'm just looking forward to hearing so many great things about this guy. He's not been at it very long. But man, he sounds like he's 45 years old. That voice is so resonant, so beautiful. And his thoughts are great too. We were able to have lunch together today and it was super enjoyable. But it would be inappropriate if I didn't talk to you about the servant who labors among you, my friend Kyle Blevins. He is such an anomaly. He is one of the most unusual young men that you're going to come across. There's a genuineness and an intelligence that coexist in him that's hard to find in other places. He combines a healthy dose of common sense with the things that he does. He reads the Bible like a regular person and knows how to talk about those things to regular people. And I know you must be thankful that he's here. I know that you must be grateful for his presence and for his wife. I get the impression that Holly is really spunky. And there's very little better in this world than a spunky lady. Somebody who knows where to take the fight and what to do with it but has a gentle spirit and quiet among all of the things that she does. She goes about the things that she does, and she is a tremendous support to him, and he is a support to her. And I love these guys. R.E.M., you guys are getting it done. I'm so thankful for them. I got to eat with them again, and we ate something that Miss Paula made. And she seemed surprised, but that's the way it happened. That is the way it happened. So uh, we're all full, and we're all happy, and we've got a few more things to talk about in the book of James. Let's talk about practical stuff. James is dedicated to making us complete. He wants us to be mature. And he knows in order to do that, he's going to have to push some buttons. He's going to shove us out of our comfort zones a little bit. And he's not afraid to do that. He uses really strong language in some cases to get people off of their seats, to stand up spiritually and start growing again. He wants to provoke us to maturity. And that is necessary in every case. And so a gospel meeting is a good time to sort of feel the wake-up call, to drink the spiritual coffee, to say, you know what, I've been through a cycle 
And I've been kind of at a low spot. It's time for me to step it up. It's time for me to throw some wood on the fire. I'm ready to start growing again. That is the way I use gospel meetings that we have. We just had, I told you, one of the best gospel meetings we've ever had. If you really want a treat, if you really want something super useful, forget all of this stuff and go to our website and listen to Chris Emerson talk to us for a week. That was one of the most impressive experiences I've had in my adulthood. I don't know how to recommend that any more highly than that. It was so good. That's the way I think gospel meetings ought to be. So I'm going to try to do that one last time here tonight. I don't know how successful I'll be. Is it wrong to be wealthy? Is it wrong to be rich? We hesitate to answer that question, don't we? Because we have so closely associated wealth with some pretty bad stuff and some pretty bad folks. But if it's wrong to be wealthy, we'd have to go back and talk to Abraham about that. And we'd have to talk to Job about that. And we'd have to talk to David and Solomon about that. We'd have to talk to an awful lot of people. We'd have to look at the people in the first century church and say, how did you guys end up having multiple houses that you're selling? How is it that you have so much to give so that other people can have? How do you still have a house after giving so much? Wow, there were some wealthy people there. So there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. And even Jesus doesn't say you can't go to heaven if you're rich. He says it's hard to go to heaven if you're rich. And when someone says, well, then I guess it's no use. He says, no, no, with God, everything is possible. So how is it that we handle wealth? James will tell us. Chapter 5, beginning verse 1. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Wow, James. How about you stick to the preaching and leave the meddling to somebody else? What is James doing? He's jumping into your pocketbook. And there is almost nothing that's more demonstrative about what a man is than if you examine his budget. How does he spend his money? How does he take that hard work that he's turned into capital and use that? And James says, let me show you how some people have used it, how some of the people around us are using it, and let me tell you a few things you need to know. Number one, don't hoard up stuff for yourself. Don't just pile up wealth. There is a thought, <clears throat> excuse my voice, puberty's been really hard on me. <laughs> there is a thought in our world where people have the idea that whoever has the most stuff wins, right? And that has absolutely penetrated the church. And even really super decent, godly men and women are preoccupied with the idea that they will have something to leave their children when they're dead. And what I've noticed is that most of the time, the kids fight over what's left when you're dead. So we told my parents, spend everything. Spend all of it. Spend your, uh, your, our inheritance. Spend, go in the reverse mortgage. Whatever you got to do, get rid of everything. Leave nothing for us. The biblical model is that parents will be taken care of by 
the children. Do you know how many, this is just an interesting take on things, I'm, I'm leaving this just slightly. Do you know how many nursing homes there were in mainland China in the year that I was born, 1972? Do you know how many nursing homes there were for old folks? I can tell you how many exactly. Do you know how many there were? One. In all of mainland China. Do you know why? Because in Eastern culture, the elderly are revered. It is an honor to keep an older mother or a grandmother or a grandfather in your home. It brings honor to that home to have that elder citizen there because there's wisdom and there's glory in the hoary head when it's found in the way of righteousness. Even those folks knew that. It's because God made it that way. And here it is. We're trying to figure out how we're going to have long-term health insurance in case we need to be in a home. What is that all about? It is people being influenced by culture more than they're being influenced by the Bible. And that's something we really need to give some thought to. And so it all comes down to this right here. He says, don't hoard up wealth for yourself. I hit that wrong button again. He says down there in verse 4, don't rip people off. And here's where we're all like, oh, let me take my ease on this one. I can, I can sit back. I don't even hire people. I work for somebody. I work for wages. I don't have to worry about ripping off my laborers because I'm not a, a business owner. Well, wait a second. Is it possible that you'd rip somebody off that you're working for? Has, has anyone here worked at a place, let's say an office setting? Maybe there's sales and service and products going on. And from... Let's call it October through December. Half the work gets done that used to be done because people are shopping online for Christmas. You've been in an environment like that? Do you think people think anything of that nowadays? Do you think they think anything of just spending half the day figuring out how is it? How am I going to still get paid for eight hours and only work six? And most people aren't thinking about it too hard. They're just doing it. They're trying to squeeze and stretch that day out and make it look. We've got this perfected. If the boss shows up, this is what you do. If you work at a desk, this is what you do. It doesn't matter if you're actually looking at anything or working on anything. That looks like you're working. We've got it figured out. There are special shortcuts that people are familiar with on their their keyboards that if they're playing a game or they're shopping online or they're looking at pornography they hit those boom those two buttons real quick because the boss showed up and right over the shoulder like oh it looks like they're working that's ripping people off and we get it in our minds we get this rationalization we start thinking to ourselves well I'll tell you I do more work than most people around here I'm doing as much work in four hours as most people do in eight and I'm being paid the same thing they're being paid so I don't feel bad about only working four hours or trying to weasel my way out of it or taking ten more minutes during lunch or taking an extra and listen this is a big one this is a big one right here the people who smoke get extra breaks did you know that because they have an addiction. They get to go out and smoke a cigarette three or four or five or 25,000 times a day. And you say to yourself, well, I don't smoke. I deserve a break too. Now, is that what you agreed to? Is that what you're working for? Is that what the boss told you you could do? Is it? We justify and rationalize all kinds of stuff in the name of this. And then he goes on to say, there are things that we get and put in our hands that we are selfishly wasting. Well... You think to yourself, well, I'm not rich, 
So I don't know anything about this. We talked about this already, haven't we? You are rich. You're, you're fantastically wealthy. What you possess, what you use, what you throw away would feed families all over the world. Let me tell you about the thing that hurts my feelings when I start talking about this. Really bothers me. Uh, my wife has taught me to look for bargains. And bless her heart for that, it has really saved us a lot of money. But it's led us all in the search for a good deal. It's led us all down a path where we're looking for the absolute cheapest way to obtain goods. And you know what that's driven the American economy to do? To put people to work in the most impoverished parts of the world for pennies a day in order to produce things that we can buy that we simply could not afford if American hands made them. There's a, a shoe company called New Balance, and one of the guys that we worship with in, at Expressway owns a shoe store. It's called Swag Sports Shoes, and there's two locations there, and he's just a super generous guy. He's super nice. He explained to me, if you have New Balance shoes, let me tell you what you can tell. If you have New Balance shoes, and it's a brand new box of shoes, you open it up, and they're laced, they were not made in America. Do you know why? It's too expensive to pay Americans to lace shoes. If you open up a box of New Balance and they, do not, they have not already been laced up, you have to lace them up yourself, those were made in America. There's a huge difference. And there's a massive different markup. And we all kind of look at that and we go, yeah, well, that's just the, that's the price of capitalism. That's just the way it works. You know, competition, all that kind of stuff. Okay, listen, I'm an American. I get it. I like it. I like the fact that we can buy stuff that's cheap and we can have all kinds of stuff and value for the dollar. I'm really big about that. But once in a while, it would serve us to think what it costs another human being to produce a thing that we have considered so cheaply. And we do not even think about that. We, don't even, we just let that not even cross our minds about how some poor little brown hands have put this thing together. Maybe a child has made these things so we could buy it at Walmart for $10. So we could buy it at this crazy markdown price that only is possible because of the suffering of other people. And if we never think about that once, it costs us just this much of our humanity. I'm a full-blown... I'm, I'm so completely in love with capitalism. You just have no idea. I think it's the only system in which humans can actually thrive. But within that, we have got to consider the human cost of things. We've got to think about other people and what that does to them. And a, a rising tide should lift all boats, right? Well, in the extreme versions of this, it doesn't. Is that something we've ever given any thought to while we're watching our flat screen TVs that just get bigger and bigger and bigger? I remember back in the day when I first saw my, my first 80-inch flat screen TV. Do you remember the first time you saw one that big? I was... Pretty confident I'd been to movie theaters that had smaller screens. The sound bars get more complicated. It's amazing. A, a sound bar can give you the sound that the used to have to have six or seven speakers around to do that. Oh, man, and the little gadgets you can have in the kitchen that make short work of very difficult things. We live in luxury. And we think because we're middle class or maybe even lower middle class 
that we are not living luxurious lives beyond the imagination of 90% of the world's population. If we don't think about it, maybe it's not true. Well, that isn't so. So how is it we think about other people in relation to the things that we have? Do we waste what's been given to us? Do you remember, any, any of you remember back in the day when you went to the dinner table that you weren't allowed to leave until you cleaned your plate? Some people don't. You get to a certain age. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 and under. If you're, if you're under 40, you don't know anything about that. Unless you were raised by grandparents, maybe. Well, what was that about? I'll tell you what that was about. That was about people who came up in more austere times. That was about people who live with a whole lot less than we have. And they appreciated the value of what it cost to put some food on the table. And if it was going to be expended, if it, the resources were, if it's worthy of getting, it was worthy of devouring and using because they understood it was resources. And today, we've got laws that prohibit restaurants from giving food that they cannot sell during the course of business. They cannot just give that to poor people. And I assume that's because poor people could sue if they got botulism. I don't know what all the reasons are, but that's the world we live in. We can throw away literally tons and tons of food every day. According to law, we have to. That's how rich we are. That's how wealthy our society is. Do we ever give any thought to that? Any thought at all. We do not live in the world that these people lived in. And the moment it takes us to think about that, it gets really uncomfortable. He also says that we, these folks have had all the pleasure and the luxury that they've had at the expense of other people. And he says, you, you should not abuse the power that wealth gives you. And again, we look at that and we say, well, I'm not rich. I don't have much power. Let me tell you, the, the buying power of your dollar you do appreciate. Have you ever been standing in a store just, or just walking into a store and there you are and over at the customer service counter is Linda. Everybody knows who Linda is, don't they? Linda is the lady whose her favorite phrase is, I want to talk to a manager. You, you know what I'm talking about? They all have the same haircut and they're all, they look almost all the same. And they are very kind of pinched faced and they're always very upset about something. And they're talking about how they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And if this isn't made right, they're going to... Get, I get it. Listen, if there's a service being provided, if there's a product, to be, it needs to be good. And if it's not, you should get your money back, etc. I get all of that. But the way in which we conduct ourselves with other people is demeaning to their humanity if we feel like we have the power. If we are the one who buys, if we're the one who has the wealth, even if it's over a t-shirt or a coffee maker or any petty little thing. And let me tell you, here's one of the moments that we don't want to think about too much because it's way too close to home. How do you treat wait staff at restaurants when you go to eat? How do you talk to those people? Do you know they all have names? They have families. They've got moms and dads. Some of them have kids and they're trying to raise them. And the job they could get based on the decisions they've made, that's as good as the job can get. I will tell you, I have been ashamed going out to eat with brethren after church. And what was so shameful is that we were all dressed like this. 
we clearly on a Sunday afternoon had come from the church building together and we're talking about God and we're talking about Bible class and talking about the sermon and these folks are abusing beyond the endurance of a mile this poor girl or this poor guy who hasn't brought their drink refill fast enough who, listen, I said I didn't want any salt on this. I said I didn't want... (sighs) I ordered this without beans, please. I said, double rice. This isn't right at all. I don't know why we keep coming here. They never get this right. Uh, hello? That's an abuse of power that wealth affords you. And it's you. If you've ever eaten in a restaurant, you've got that power. What James is telling us is that rich people need to remember it's more important that they're people than it is that they're rich. And you need to remember that too, to whatever degree that's true, because there's always somebody down the ladder from where you are, and they are possessed of the same dignity that every God-breathed soul possesses. Everyone. And I don't, have a, I don't have the right to mistreat them. I don't have a right to talk down to them. I don't have the right to do anything that would take any of that away from them. And so he has a couple of solutions in mind here. First of all, you've got to get your wealth, whatever degree of it you've attained, in a proper way. That means you've got to work appropriately for it. Don't work too much. Don't work too little. Don't try to avoid work. Work is totally satisfying. I think there's something in here about having contentment with what you have. And if it's not here, it's all throughout the rest of this book. Having the idea that I need to want what I have instead of work to have what I want. I need to want what's already mine. That's what I need to do. And I need to think about saving money. Do you see all the stuff he's talking about? The riches being corrupted. Their garments are moth-eaten. The corrosion is a witness against them. They've piled it all up instead of using it. Well, what's the opposite of that? I've been, I've been a, a couple of places with folks who are members of the Lord's body who will say things like, well, I have so little money, I might as well spend all of it. <laughs> really? Really? And we don't stop to think about, if I don't save money properly, if I, don't, if, I, if I overspend it, if I do not properly apply it, what happens? Well, here's a couple of things that happen. If I'm not saving some money, if I'm not holding a little bit of this money back, not piling it up, not hoarding it, but if I don't, what happens is I am now at a disadvantage everywhere I go. I may be deprived of the opportunity of supporting the Lord's church to a degree that would make me feel like a real fellow in that fellowship. I may be deprived of the opportunity of helping someone who's actually in need because I've wasted what I have on luxuries. I've wasted what I have on things I didn't need and now I don't even have enough to give to somebody who actually has a need, a real need. Someone who's actually hungry. Someone who's actually homeless. Someone who's actually naked. I don't have anything to give them because I've spent everything amiss on my pleasures. And this goes back to chapter 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, he calls people, who spend amiss and they spend it on their pleasures. Well, what is it that he's trying to say? Wealth needs its proper application. And that means that I have to have stewardship over all the stuff that's been given to me. All of my life. Everything that's been put into my possession is a stewardship. That means... 
I'm going to give an account of that to God. And all of the talk he does here, when he starts personifying wealth, and he says it's going to testify against them in that day, he's leaning up to something. He's going to be talking about very explicitly here in just a moment about the Lord's coming. Three different times in a few verses here, he's going to mention the Lord's coming. And he's loading up. He's getting everything ready to talk about that. And strangely, he's going to take a turn here in just a moment to talk to us about patience. Does that seem strange to you? Now I want you to ask yourself before we transition this, what does it take to not impulse buy? What does it take to be thoughtful enough to save? What does it take to be aware of what other people need and provide for that? My friends, that takes patience. That takes a view of things that is controlled by God. So let's read these next few verses together. Let's start down in verse 7. Therefore, isn't that interesting? You ever noticed that before? There's a therefore at the beginning of verse 7 connecting to the thoughts from verses 1 through 6. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You've heard of the preservation of, of Job, the perseverance of Job, and have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Well, I think what he's got in mind here is the opposing of rich and poor. He's got this sort of juxtaposition of these two sets of people. And it's in the church. And it goes all the way back to chapter 2, doesn't it? Where you treat the rich man who comes into the assembly differently than you do the poor man. And he says, these are the things you've got to think about. God's going to settle all of it. God's going to take care of all of these things. So he says, patience is what you need. You don't need justice. You don't need to work it out. You don't need to handle it. You don't need to step up and make yourself known and use your power, use your voice, use all of your talents. He says, you need some patience. That's what you need. When circumstances are out of your control, boy, don't we like to be in control. Don't you like that? I'll confess something to you. There's a great big list I could, but I'm just going to confess one thing to you. If I'm in a car, I much prefer to be the driver. It's not that I think anybody else is a bad driver. There are a few people I do think are bad drivers, and I just won't ride with them. But I think I'm a really good driver. I'm kind of an exceptionally good, very, very good driver. You know, like uh, Rain Man. But that is an indication to me of my desire to have control over things and circumstances and people and, and all of that. And it's a window into my mind. And I'll tell you, when I've been most frustrated in my life, when I've been the most irritated with brethren, when I have been the most infuriated, is when I couldn't do anything about what they had decided. 
I couldn't change their mind. I couldn't make the decision for them. I couldn't micromanage them. It had become completely out of my reach. I couldn't make them behave. I couldn't guilt them into behaving. I couldn't preach them into submission. They just did whatever they wanted. And I was looking at that and I thought, Lord, it's about time we get some thunderbolts in here, isn't it? It's time for you to bring them. Should we call down fire out of heaven on them, Lord? Shall we do that? When Jesus was asked that question, what did he say? He said, one firebolt coming up, boys. Watch this. It's going to blow their sandals off. Pow! Is that what he did? He kind of gave one of those, he who's not against us is with us messages, didn't he? He was kind of like, you just whittle on your end of the stick, son. Don't you worry about what other people are doing. You do what's right. And in order to do that, you're going to have to have tremendous patience because you are not going to be able to control what other people do. You use your influence, but you cannot control. You simply cannot control other people. You ever spend much time waiting? Remember all those precious ages that you just couldn't wait to be? 16 was the big one, wasn't it? Of course, if you go back before that, you remember 12 was kind of a big deal. But 13, man, 13, that's when you become a teenager. And you know who the coolest people in the world are? If you're from ages 5 to 11, teenagers. They're super cool. Later, when you have teenagers, you realize how wrong you were. How super, super, super wrong you were. Teenagers are not cool at all. They're painful. They're a little painful, really. But all those things you hurried along. You wanted things to come. You, you couldn't wait to get out of mom and dad's house. You couldn't wait to get your degree. You couldn't wait to get that diploma. You couldn't wait to get that job. You couldn't wait to live in the real world and do some adulting. You couldn't wait to have your own apartment. Then the bills start coming in. Then the hardships start happening. You realize how hard it is to make a dollar. And you realize what it means to be over 18. And you start voting. You're like, oh, I'm old enough to vote now. And the person you voted for loses. And you're like, ah, how come everybody's so dumb? They didn't vote for the same person I voted for. And it's this experience of growing older that kind of gradually makes you aware you are here for the ride, friend. Get used to the motion of that ocean. You are here for the ride. You cannot control everything else be patient if you're being abused by people who are taking their power and misusing it be patient they will either repent and be right with the Lord or the Lord will deal with them and he can do things to them that you could not begin to imagine patience you need it real bad what about when people are unchangeable? When people have just made it really clear they're not going to do much of anything. This, this takes you back, and I think in particular, when he mentions the prophets, I think it takes us back to the time particularly of Jeremiah, the guy we call the weeping prophet. It was really clear very early in Jeremiah's prophecy, God said, yeah, you're going to have to say all this stuff. Number one, they're going to hate it. Number two, they're not going to do it. Number three, they're going to beat you up and stuff because of it. And there's a point at which where Jeremiah's like, I made my mind, I wasn't going to say that stuff anymore. This is, 
This is ridiculous. And it came upon Jeremiah. He realizes how important those things are. And he said, I grew weary of holding back the word of God, the truth from being spoken, this unpopular prophecy that nobody wanted to hear. I grew weary of holding that back and I could not hold it back anymore because it was like a fire shut up in my bones. Because he realized, even when people are unchangeable, the truth needs to be spoken. And if people won't react to that the way you think they should, this is where you need to have macrothumios. That is literally long-windedness. That you have to have a long spirit, a fuse that doesn't burn quickly, that's very long. It takes a long time to get you to blow up. There's an old proverb that is not in the Bible. <clears throat> it says, if you don't want someone to get your goat, don't show them where it's hid. And that proverb is all about you not reacting to bullies. You not reacting to people who are trying to get a rise out of you or to gain power over you by causing you to lose your cool. By causing you to lose the place that you've decided you needed to be in. You lose your credibility if you lose your emotions. If your uh, anger gets out of control, if your sadness gets out of control, the people who are acting ugly, they get what they want. When these people are unchangeable, what you have to do is be long-fused long-breathed, spirit that is steadfast. And while they are being unchangeable, you stick with the Lord. And every once in a while, what you're going to find is that problems are just unexplainable. Why do the rich get richer and the poor get poorer? Why is it always so unfair? Why do things keep doing what they're doing? Why doesn't God jump in and do some stuff here? What is going on? And who does He bring up? Whose name does he intone in this passage? Well, it's, it's good old Job. <laughs> we don't have time to talk about Job, do we? He doesn't even bother. This is a great time to bring this up. The writers of the New Testament assume you know a lot about the Old Testament. Have you noticed that? They never take a second to explain anything about the Old Testament. They just throw up a story and they assume you know it. They say, Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, that was bad, huh? And you're supposed to be like, yeah, that was... Wow, yeah, that was bad. <laughs> Noah and the ark. What God did there. Wasn't that amazing? Well, you're supposed to know about that. And when he talks about Job, you're, you're supposed to know the story of Job. Because it tells its own lesson within the context of what James is talking about. And he says, let me tell you something. Here's a guy who didn't have any explanations for anything. And neither did his, and I use this term loosely, friends. And certainly neither did Mrs. Job, who doesn't even get the dignity of a name because she was terrible. Curse God and die. Well, thanks, hun. And still, with all of that, he, he had no explanation for these things. Life's not fair. Do you know life's not fair? Do you already know that? Boy, I hope you do. Do you already know that life's not fair? Do you know it, sweetheart? Does anybody here think life's about to get fair? Like next Friday? It's not gonna. We must stop pursuing the fairness model that has never existed among humans and will never exist. 
It doesn't matter what political system you believe in. Is, is, it, is it fair in capitalism? It most certainly is not. Has it ever been fair in socialism? It most certainly has not. Is it fair unto autocrats and dictators? It is not. It's very bad usually. Has it ever been fair unto a monarchy? No. Nothing has ever been fair because it always involves people and people always take abuses with the power and the money and all the resources that they gain and they try to hoard those things and pile them up. And he says, when you get into situations like this, remember God. Remember God. Why would I need to be patient? Because I know. Verse 8 says, God's in control. Yeah, bad stuff happens. And He lets bad stuff happen. Three times here He mentions the coming or the presence of the Lord. Over and over again, Jesus talks about His coming again. And, and how is it going to be? It's going to be as a thief in the night. And the New Testament writers pick up on that same thing. Same theme. It's going to come as a thief in the night. Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night. The last things Jesus says in His departure messages in Matthew are these two basic ideas. Be good and be ready. That is really the summation of the doctrine of the New Testament. Accept what Jesus has to say and according to that, be good and be ready because He's coming back. Because God is in control. What you do not want is to lose your cool or to lose your faith or to lose that status of being in Christ and then God comes back. Then Jesus shows up. And every moment of your life, it's a possibility. And you've got to just say, listen, I don't care who's messing with me. I don't care who's messing with the church. I don't care who's messing with the country. God is in control. It doesn't mean I'm not going to take a roller coaster ride. There's going to be some rough patches. But do you think the future of the Lord's church lies on what happens in this location? As the Lake Street Church of Christ, so goes the kingdom. Do you have enough arrogance to think that? Do you? I can tell you, there was a moment in time that I think, very subconsciously, I thought that a little bit about Expressway. I kind of thought, well, this is a good model of what the church is supposed to be like. And boy, we had some problems where people had decided they were not going to be changed. The situation was uncontrollable. And I didn't understand it. It was really unfair. And it devastated my view of the Lord's church. And I took this very localized view of what the kingdom was for just a little while and I just kind of despaired. And I'm going to tell you something, despair is a sin because your God is greater than all the things that humans have ever tried to do to the kingdom. He says it is the everlasting kingdom. It is not going to be destroyed. It cannot be destroyed. No matter who does what to it. Why? Because He is in control. And I will never forget that. The moment I am tempted to give up here in my local sense is the moment the devil gets exactly what he wants. And he stinks. And I'm not going to give him anything. He's taken too much already. Remember in verse 11 here. God rewards patience. Look at down there again what he says. We count them blessed to endure. 
You've heard of this perseverance. And you see what God was intending. Well, your character's improving. Your relationship's getting better. Your happiness is more available. It's steady. You've got peace. You get blessings along the way. And somebody rocks the boat and retaliation just tastes delicious. Vengeance is fantastic. I used to joke around with people and say, uh, you know, if you, if you get somebody back for a little prank or something, you'd quote and you'd say, well, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I'm just doing the Lord's work. You ever had that view? That I'm going to take care of business here. I'm going to do a little hiney kicking. I'm going to do a little straightening out because I'm an agent of God's what? Justice? Are you an agent of justice? Are you an arbiter of justice? Or are you a seeker of mercy? See, that's the only two things you get to be. Which are you going to be? I don't have the foresight or the insight to be an arbiter of justice. But I've got plenty of sin, so I can be a seeker of mercy all day. I've got that for forever. But once in a while, I need, to remember, I need a reminder of that. <clears throat> Verse 11 again. The, in, the end intended by the Lord... And how he's compassionate and merciful. God's working stuff out. We use that word providence. And I think we use it as a crutch to offset our view of the modern miracle. You know, we're, we're like, well, we don't believe in miracles happening in the modern age. You know, the spiritual gifts have ceased and we have the Bible. That's really the point of all of that. And since, uh, since we don't believe in miracles, well... Providence is miracle's second cousin, twice removed, and it is pretty nice. It's okay. And what we're doing is we're taking a really limited view of what providence is. We're taking the view that says, I can see what God's doing. (laughs) How clever am I? I see what God's doing. And we forget that God is an eternal being who does not have a watch or a calendar. He is the master of all things spatial, physical, and spiritual. And here's the deal. What providence is, is that God already knows everything that's ever going to be. And even before you knew to ask what you asked for, God could put that into motion. All He needs is for you to ask it. That is the power of prayer. He doesn't need to do it in a miraculous way. That is indeed the very definition of miraculous, not in the biblical exemplary sense, but in the sense of the word dunamis. It is power. It is the demonstration of power. Not only does He have power to heal the sick, and we're going to see that in just a moment. He's got power to heal the sick, and all He needs is for you to put the prayer in, and it's already been in action. He knew it before you were going to ask it. And that's the kind of thing that providence is. And we're all kind of sitting back like we just, like, is this string theory? What is he talking about? It's as simple as this. God is not limited by anything. And when you're asking God for stuff, you must not be the unstable, double-minded man he talked about in chapter 1, but believe what God says he can do. He can do. And if God doesn't give you what you want, you must grant that is not the will of God. But there is nothing too hard for him. There isn't anybody he couldn't work on. There isn't anything he couldn't accomplish. There isn't any sickness he couldn't heal. There is nothing he couldn't do. But because we like the faith to ask those things, sometimes we have tied his hands. He is unable to act because he requires our prayer 
to move in that direction. Do you all understand that? It's not a limitation we can put on Him. It's a condition He has put on us. We must ask. We must recognize our dependence and say, I think you can do this, God. I'm going to ask big. I'm going to pray huge. I'm not going to let go until I get this thing. I'm going to be persistent. And I'm also going to be humble enough to say, if it doesn't happen now, I know you have made it so. It may not be right right now. But I will want. And I do like. And could you please... And God, please grant this prayer and make it huge. Make it enormous. Because there is nothing that God cannot do except fail. It is the only thing He can not do. Why would I be patient? Because God, that's why. It's the real test of your faith. The faith He asked about in chapter 2, saying, do you, do you really believe? Well, let's... Let's see it, Jack. Let's have you put your feet where your prayers are. Are you asking that God would move somebody's heart that is not attached to Him right now? Are you asking for God to move that person toward Him? Then put your feet where those prayers are. Be the agent of information. Be the, the, the lighter that lights the fuse. Be the one who gets things started. Are you asking for God to save a hundred people in Nicholasville over the next five years. Would you ask God for that? Some of you are going, that's kind of a lot. It's a lot for you. You're very weak. But what about God? It'd be a lot for me. I'm, I'm not, John, that sounded bad. I, I, I'm not insulting you. I'm saying for humans. It's a lot for humans. Is that a lot for God? It's not even a lot for Nicholasville. But we do not ask because we think, oh, well, I don't know if I could do that. You could do that. If God could make you capable of doing it, you could do that. You might be surprised how little sleep you get on with. You might be surprised how little it would take to keep you, keep you going. Because the first time the person is baptized that you introduce to the gospel, you feel like Superman or Superwoman, just like that. You're like, I'm going to go save everybody. I'm ready to go. Turn me loose. It's like saying, sick him to a bulldog. you got to ask big, though. you got to believe that God can do these things because He can. And he says, how do you go about all this? He says, look at the farmer. Wait expectantly. Do you know what it means to wait expectantly? I understand that better now than I ever did. You know why I understand it? Amazon Prime. I order something from Amazon Prime and it can be the smallest of things. I ordered a five pack of USB thumb drives and I ordered that on Prime. And let me tell you something. That little knock on the door comes, a little message from the text or from the email that says your package has been delivered. Feels hot to try. I'm so excited about that. I can't wait for it to show up. I'm waiting expectantly. I'm like two days and it was last week that they said Amazon is working on this, that Prime is going to go from two days to one. Oh boy, here we go. We live in the future, friends. He says, this is the way you wait on God. Wait expectantly. Do you know what that means? I have every confidence that it is coming. I have every expectation that God is going to deliver on this. And he says, wait quietly. Watch your mouth. 
Do not doubt. Do not make the mistake of opening your mouth and interfering with what God is doing. Let God be God and you be a human and let Him do the part that belongs to Him. And He also says we should wait confidently, that we should have a great expectation, that our hope is alive and well, that God can do all of these things. And He tells us about this in verse 12, the carefulness of our character that we guard against all of the things that might assault us from the outside. Well, let's finish up and talk about prayer because this is the part everybody thinks James 5 is about anyway. Verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again and heaven gave rain. The earth produced its fruit. Brethren, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What helps in every pursuit? This is why James ends with this, I believe. Every pursuit of my growth and maturity. What helps in every aspect of that? Prayer. Prayer. And he outlines it for us. When should you pray? Well, you should pray when you're in trouble and when you're suffering. That's a good time to ask for help because, you know, you need it. And that's a good time to be asking because you feel like you need it. Your emotions and your reality have coincided in this beautiful coalescence of an agreement as you go to God. I know that I need help. I feel like I need help. This is a good time to ask for help. You're in the right spot. It's a beautiful thing. And he also says, if you're cheerful, let's make sure that you give the... the, Do where it belongs. He says, let them sing psalms. What are psalms? Psalms are songs of praise. Why would I be happy? Why am I cheerful? I know why I'm cheerful. Because God made me this way. Because God gave me this circumstance. Because God put this in my life. Because God, because God, because God. He also says you need to pray when you're sick. You may need more. You may need more than just prayer. You may need someone who's a real powerful prayer. May need an elder. Call for an elder of the church. And we say, oh, well, we don't have an elder. We're going to call Kyle. That's the way that works? You know the way it works in most churches, right? The preacher does the work of the elders. The elders do the work of the deacons. And deacons don't do anything at all. That's the way it works, right? Isn't that, isn't that the model? That's American religion. That's not biblical Christianity. There's a reason there are elders here. The reason he mentions elders here. Do you know why? Do you know why he talks about it so casually? you know why he doesn't even bother? This is one of the earliest letters of the New Testament. Do you know what he's talking about? Elders are a necessity. They're not a nicety. They're not a luxury. They're not a pleasantry. They're not a way down the line. Maybe one day we'll get some. It is a necessity. It is a first principles issue. A church needs them. And Kyle, forgive me. I'm going to say something. I wanted to let you say it, but I'm going to say it. 
church doesn't have elders. We can bemoan it and we can talk about it and just say, oh, how terrible that is. And we can say, well, we'd love to have elders, but we just don't. Well, right now, there's nobody qualified. We don't know how to go about that. Maybe all of that's true. So I'm going to ask you a question. When is the best time to plant an apple tree? Kyle knows the answer. He can't answer. A lot of you have been familiar with uh, agriculture and the way farming works. When's the best time to plant an apple tree? You might say spring. Some people have. You know the best time to plant an apple tree? 20 years ago. If apples are what you're looking for, you should have done it 20 years ago. You know when the next best time to plant an apple tree is? Today. If you ever want to eat an apple, you had better get one planted today. That means the seed's got to go in the ground. you got to think about what it takes to make that seed grow. you got to think about what it takes to get that thing from one place to the next phase, to the next stage of development. So one day it will be mature and it will bear fruit. But if you've decided I want an apple and I can't have an apple today, therefore I'm not going to do anything about it, I guess we're just never going to have apples, then nobody ever gets apples. Ever. And that's selfish. And it's wrong-minded. What does it take to get into that future? What would someone tell me if they came from 2039 back here to 2019? They said, if we're ever going to have elders, you know what we need? You guys are going to have to do what? A, B, C. You have to figure that out. Because that's the way he's talking about this issue. Like you have them. As if it's a given. It's just, they're just there. And why would they be called? Because they're needed. Because he says the prayer of faith will save the sick. Well, who is he talking about praying for these people? Elders. How how valuable, how important those pastors would be. And he also says when you need forgiveness, it's a great time to pray. Because once again, you find yourself in that situation where you know you need it, you feel like you need it, and it's so important that you obtain it. And in all of this, he uses the example of Elijah. And one of the most beautiful things he says here is that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Did you catch that? One of my favorite things about this whole book is how he takes the greatest manifestation of prophecy that the Jews were aware of. It's the guy who met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is so closely associated with Jewish prophecy. He's the embodiment of the prophets in the law and the prophets. Moses and he show up. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like yours. And when he prayed, God heard him. He said, don't let it rain for a year and six months. Well, guess what? 18 months, no rain. When he prayed and asked for rain again, what happened? God gave it. What is he saying? Elijah was a good prayer. Is that the message? Go figure out how Elijah prayed and just imitate his prayers. That is not the message. The message is, while you're alive on the earth and communicating with the God of heaven through the advocacy of prayer pray like Elijah in faith with no doubting in cooperation with God in agreement with what is so important to him that you've lost who you are in God's will that is what Elijah was doing 
as a man, as a mere mortal human being who was depressed at times, who was wildly discouraged, who felt super alone from time to time, he would come out of the woodwork with both fists swinging and give the devil a black eye and then someone would badmouth him and he'd go cry for a little bit. Sounds like he's got a nature just like mine. And he says, God's attention was gained by that man and God gave him what he prayed for. So you pray too. And he says, all of this goes to the last two verses of this whole book. Everything James has said, every last bit of this is about saving souls. Everything to do with the church, everything to do with your maturity, everything to do with your growth is about saving souls. So as you leave here tonight, what I want you to do is think about what souls are you going to work on saving? There are all kinds of great options. You've got kids of your own, kids of other people. You've got parents, people who are lost, who are older than you. You've got siblings who are lost. You've got grandparents. You've got friends. You've got neighbors. You've got coworkers. You've got the people that your kids go to school with. You've got people that your kids go to classes with and learn piano with and soccer and all the different things. You've got people who used to be saved and they've walked away from the Lord and they're out in the world again. You've got people who have never heard the first thing about it, don't even know who Noah is. They're everywhere. You can't swing a dead cat without seeing somebody who's lost in your community, in your neighborhood. So what James is saying, the culmination of all your maturity is to remember this. Brethren, if you save a soul from being lost, let me tell you, God loves that. That'll cover a multitude of sins. Someone says, well, is that your sins or is that, is that the other person's sins? Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? It's sin. And God's wiping it away. God's clearing it out. And He says, you, you get to cooperate with the God of heaven. He didn't ask you when He was building the earth whether the pillars need to go so deep or not, but He's asking you now to save souls that are going to last for eternity. The earth is going to burn up. People are going to last forever. And he says, I'm asking you to cooperate with me. I'm asking you to take my hand and help me save these people. That's the ultimate end of your maturity, friends. That is really what James is trying to get at. So please, take everything we've talked about, multiply it in your heart, multiply it in your mind, increase your understanding of those things, and go win people for the Lord. Stop playing defense and holding on to the hill that God's given and get out there and work some offense and give the devil a black eye. God, be glorified. I'm sorry I took so long to say all of that, but I'm finished. You all have been so entirely patient, so kind, so receptive. You, I've been tremendously encouraged by this. I, I would love to be more helpful. I don't know exactly how. But I want you to know I'm open to it. And there could be somebody here who needs to obey the gospel. I don't know. And it could be somebody here who needs the prayers of the saints. We've had two courageous souls ask for those prayers last night. And I, my heart was stirred by all of that. But it doesn't mean nobody else needs it. If there's something we can do to help you get closer to God and draw near to Him, we would love to do that. Come and let us know what that is as we stand and sing.